Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. If you haven't met me before, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Connect. I'm usually in Musenberg on a Sunday morning, but it is good to be with you. You will probably know if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. It's going to take us another three months, and we're really looking forward to the journey. There's a lot of really wonderful things in the book of Genesis. And this morning, I get to speak on perhaps one of the most well-known stories in the whole of Scripture. Uh, I actually Googled it to find out if that was true, and it is. In all of the four lists I found of the top ten stories in the Bible, the Genesis flood appeared, if not number two, then on the top ten. So this is one of the most well-known stories. We're going to spend this morning, we're going to talk about Noah and his ark, except that we're not actually going to talk about Noah and the ark. See, I could do that. We could do that. There's a lot you could say about Noah. Right? There's a lot we could learn from him, how faithful he was in a time of rampant and abundant sin. That's a great example for us to live out today. We could talk about his total obedience in the face of an instruction from the Lord that didn't make any sense, that was completely illogical and irrational in light of what was going on. We could do that. We could talk about the wisdom that Noah used as he confronted challenges as he was traveling on the ark and as the floodwaters began to recede. We could spend time, we could talk about the scientific validity of the flood. We could discuss the archaeological and the theological evidence for a local flood or a global flood and what was more likely. We could ask questions about the reasonableness of a pair of each of the animals in the earth going onto a boat and living on a boat for a year. We could argue the apologetics for the factual nature of the ark and the flood. We could do all of those things, and many people have done all of those things. But instead of doing those things this morning, I'd like us to direct our attention to the God that we've been singing to and the God that we've been praising and honoring. Because I I think in this story, this most well-known of Bible stories, we see a picture of the fullness of the character of God in a way that we don't often see in other places in Scripture. There's this balanced representation of God's nature and His character. There's the fullness of His wrath and the extension of His grace that get interwoven together in a story that foreshadows the life that we get to live now under the new covenant. It's a story that I hope you will view with a new appreciation as we look at it together. It's my hope that it inspires in you a greater love and appreciation for God and a devotion to Him as we follow and serve Him together. It's also a story that takes place over three and a half chapters in the Bible, and if we had to go through all of those three and a half chapters together, ESCOM would cut us off with power, right? So we're going to try and and do it in snippets. I'd love to encourage you to go home and to read through the whole story by yourself. You will see, it's it's beautiful in its completeness, right? And... uh, Really go and do that. It's really going to be worth it for you. But we're going, to, we're going to go through the story. We're going to pick up some significant moments along the way. I'm going to have snippets of the, of the passages on the screen. But if you want to follow in your own Bibles, please do that. And it's going to be really, really great. Okay. However, before we turn to looking at God in the story of the flood, the story of the flood starts with a picture of humanity. It starts with a focus on our ancestors. And it looks at our deep, deep depravity and sinfulness. And so I want us to, to just set the scene, as it were, and sit in those scriptures and, and understand them a little bit, get the feel of them. So we're going to look at two of them, right? It starts Genesis chapter 6 from verse 5. It says this, 
The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. You could put that up for us, Mark. That'd be great. Thanks. And he saw everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry that he had ever made man and put them on the earth. And it broke his heart. And so he said, I am sorry that I ever made them. A little further on in verse 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This is the opening to the story of the Genesis flood. And I want, you, I want to see if you notice something. As we, as we draw a few things out, do you notice the phrases that we see here in verses 5 and verse 12? It says, the Lord observed, the Lord saw, and it says, and God saw. Does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of anything in the Genesis narrative? Remember, right back in Genesis chapter 1, God creates. And after each day of creation, God looks down at what He has done, and He saw that it was good. And after six days of creating land and plants and light and dark and sea and ground, on the sixth day he makes man and he forms men and women in his own image. And he looks down and it says, and he saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That's God's own opinion of his creation as he makes it. But five chapters on in the book of Genesis, God looks down, and it is no longer good. It is no longer very good. It has become the complete opposite of what God created. All flesh has been corrupted. The collective thoughts and deeds of humanity are described as consistently and totally evil. Isn't that terrible? The sinfulness of man is so bad that it breaks God's heart. And it says that he was grieved that he had made us. He repented of making humanity. He regretted having ever made us in the first place. These verses are designed, to, they're written in a way that helps us to recognize that what we see here in Genesis chapter 6 is a reversal of the creation week that God began in Genesis chapter 1. And in the beginning of Genesis 7, if you have a look there, you'll see that God tells Noah to go into the ark for in seven days the flood is going to come. Just as God created in a week in Genesis chapter 1, now in a week He destroys all that He created. Just think about that for a moment. The sinful actions of men and women have effectively reversed the creative design of Almighty God. Does that, does that cut you a little close? That, that grieves my heart. It breaks my heart that God's creation, those that He created in His own image and likeness, could get so corrupt that they could destroy the very thing that God created us for. And it it causes me to ask this question. I can't help but, but think this question as I read this text. What does God feel when He looks at humanity today? What does God carry in His heart when He looks at us now? 
How much pain and anguish lives in the heart of God as He looks at the brokenness of humanity? I mean, I don't know if we were worse now than we are back then. It's difficult for us to evaluate. I don't think we ever can. But we can speculate. You know, in Genesis chapter 19, you've got this is a bit of a PG story. Apologies. Right? But you've got a man who receives some visitors into his home. And an hour or two later, the village arrives outside and says, you need to release those men to us because we all want to rape them. That is a terrible thing. That is a horrendous moment. Today, we will willingly alter a person's sexuality. We will remove things and organs that God has made them with and replace them with ones that we've chosen and created ourselves. We will experiment with DNA and genome editing, create mankind in our own image. We will endorse and fight for the rights of things that God has declared to be an abomination. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul is reflecting on the state of his own generation. And and he, he uses a collection of adjectives to describe his generation and the depravity to which they have fallen. And the one that that really sits with me every time I read that description is he says that they are inventors of evil. They are people that find new and novel ways of committing evil. And I can't help but feel as I look at the world around me that that pretty well describes how our world lives today. How much grief is carried in the heart of God as he looks at his world and at his creation. But as we discovered in the evening in Musenberg a little while ago, as we read through the book of Hebrews, the writer says, I am confident of better things in your case. There are righteous people, and hopefully we are those people. Just as God looked down and everyone was sinful but Noah... I trust and hope for better things than our case. I trust that when God looks at his world and at his creation, when he looks at Connect, he sees a body of people that love him and do their best to honor him and to live out their salvation with fear and trembling towards the King of Heaven. Because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and the Spirit of the living God has come to reside inside us and has joined himself to us. And we do our best to live out our lives by the Spirit as God works in us. But the story of the flood must cause us to reevaluate how we think about and how we respond to sin. Because right at the beginning, right at the beginning of the, the story of God and the working of His people as a whole, right in the beginning even of that story, we see this, this insight into the heart of God. We see God as, as the picture of a father who has to watch his wayward child spiral deeper and deeper into darkness until he can no longer recognize that child anymore, until that child gets cut off from the family. Some of you might know from personal experience what that's like. But for me, as I, as I look at what we see in the beginning of the flood, It causes me to think differently about sin. It causes me to recognize that whenever I am tempted towards sin or whenever someone else comes to me and shares something with me and I'm tempted to to be gentle and to be light and to be gracious and, and to not call out the sin that I feel like they might be walking into, it causes me to think and to remember that sin is a serious issue. Sin is a real problem. The story of the flood reminds us of the power of our sin and the effect that it has upon the God that we love and serve.
But let's put our sin over there for a moment, right? And let's turn our eyes and our attention to the Lord. Because the story begins with our sinfulness, but that sinfulness draws three distinct responses out of God. And it's to those that we're going to give most of our attention this morning. And the first response that we see in the story of the flood is we see the justice of God as a response to the sinfulness of man. And this is perhaps the most poignant of the three responses that we see, but it's not always the most appreciated. See, the flood of Genesis most patently represents the sovereign justice of God in action. I think few stories in Scripture so exemplify this characteristic of God like the story of the flood. And I think it's probably because after the flood, God chooses in His incredible grace, and we're going to talk about this later, to limit Himself and to say, I will never again enact my justice in this way. And so right at the beginning, we have this unique story of the justice of God being outworked in human history. This flood establishes in the most emphatic terms that God is the judge of all the earth, that the wages of sin really are death, and that God is the ultimate judge to whom everyone must give an account. See, when God looked down on our sinfulness, it grieved Him to His heart. But it also caused a response of righteousness and judgment to rise up out of him. It had to come as a response to the rampant and abundant sin that existed. And he chose to bring judgment. And we see this in Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7. God makes this, this promise several times. Right? It kind of reemphasizes the strength of the purity of his response. And we're going to have a look at some of those passages together. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for behold, the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. Friends, these are some really, really strong words. And whether you are the kind of person that has compassion on others, whether you are the kind of person that feels compassion on animals, everything feels the judgment of God, man and animals, creeping bugs and flying birds, all flesh, even the earth itself, God says, is going to feel the pronouncement of His judgments. Every living thing that breathes, everything on earth will die. These are some of the harshest words of Scripture. And I want us to notice that it is man's sin, our ancestors' sin, that brought about this judgment, but it wasn't a judgment that was only exercised on humanity, but that that which God had entrusted into our care, the whole world, everything that lived and breathed, everything that was planted and had life, God had given into our care, and because we had squandered that responsibility, His judgment lands on everything that He'd given us authority over. You can see that in Genesis chapter 2. The consequence of human sin was the total destruction of all that God had made. 
Everything that he had breathed his breath of life into was put to death. That's the wages of sin. And yet as we consider that incre- the incredible gravity of that judgment, I want to suggest to you that this destruction was actually only a partial destruction. That, that this destruction still represents some restraint on God's part. And that as you go to the New Testament and you read the promises that exist there, you'll see that there is coming a day where the judgment of God will be even more severe. Jesus himself speaks about it in Luke chapter 17. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. For they will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Peter gets a little bit more explicit in his second letter to the church. And he writes and he says, guys, you need to remember, he says, I want to remind you most importantly that in the last days, scoffers will come, people that don't believe the truth. They will mock the truth and they follow their own desires. And they will say to you, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? What happened to the promise that you and I all cling to that we haven't yet seen for 2,000 years? From times before our ancestors, they will say everything has remained the same since the world was first created. But he says they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And that he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. And then he used that water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and the earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. That's the destruction that is yet to come. That's the judgment of God that is being stored up. Peter goes on to say, the reason it hasn't happened yet is because of the grace and the patience of God that he has given humanity as long as possible to repent and to turn from evil because he desires that none should perish, that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. And so he has postponed that judgment. He has held it off until the day, but a day is coming. Friends, let us make no mistake. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. Judgment and justice are being held over, but they have not been abandoned. And that for me is both comforting and a little daunting. It's comforting because when we see the great volume of evil around us, when I look around, when I read the news, when I see the terrible things that are being perpetrated by people around me, and it breaks my heart, and I read about people being raped and murdered and abandoned and abused and all kinds of horrendous things, and my heart is grieved and broken. I take comfort because I know there will be a day of judgments 
where God will hold the world to account and no evil deed will go unpunished. I find comfort in that. But it's daunting because I too will have to stand before the judge of all the earth. And all of the sin in my life will be exposed before him. And everything that has been done in darkness will be proclaimed in the light. And I praise God that on that day I will have Jesus next to me as my advocate and the propitiation for my sin. And everything that is laid bare and the shame that I feel will be laid on him. And like Paul, I can say praise be to God who saves me from this body of death. Because that's where we would all stand. Thank you, Jesus, for being the sacrifice that bears away the wrath of God on my behalf. And as I read the story and I reflect on the display of the justice of God worked out in human history, I can't help but but reflect on the reality that it paints for us as New Testament believers. It causes me to ask this question in my heart, and I want to give us a moment to just contemplate this together and to, to ask God to prompt this in us. Has the forbearance of God caused us to downplay the seriousness of sin? Has the fact that God has held off judgment, He has deferred it to a later time, and that we get to live in grace and mercy that exists in Jesus, has His incredible love towards us caused us to to downplay and to lessen the seriousness of sin? And I'd just like to give us a moment where we're silent and ask the Holy Spirit to ask that of us. And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. And we ask you, Lord, that if we have in our hearts made small the heinousness of sin, God, I pray that you call that to mind for us. If there is sin that we are currently engaged in and we are, we are close to hearing your voice on it, Lord, I pray that you call it up to us, that you would reveal it, God, and bring it into the light.
Father, we thank you. And by your Spirit, you speak to us. We welcome the searching of your Spirit in our lives. And we ask you, as David wrote, to search us, to know us, and to call out any unrighteous response in us. Amen. hammering heart and I can't keep quiet. Thank you, Brad, for this message. I just feel that we are sitting here washed by the blood of Jesus. Although we're sinless, he doesn't see our sin. And we are, I believe, rather complacent because of our, our salvation that is, is awaiting us. We are saved now and we are saved um, eternally. And, and so many things are going on in this world that, that Brad has alluded to. The, the, the terrible things that mankind is doing that is against God's will, against his stated purpose for mankind. Um, the changing of the word, the, the just, well we'll, we'll accept this one, you know, and we will change what the church is doing. Maybe not our church, but the church in general is changing what it accepts and, and to, to uh, I don't know, be accept more acceptable to the world. And we're turning away from what God wants us to do and be and live as his people. And I know that many of us don't agree with what is going on in the world and the things that are being accepted and and the things we we're staying silent i believe that we can't sit in our, our our peaceful place of of being um justified by christ's death and stay silent on these issues we need to have a voice to speak up against those things that the world is doing that is contrary to God's will. We need to have a voice, not just an individual voice, because individuals do try to speak up in various ways. Where is the voice of the church? I believe the church needs to speak up against these abominations, against the things that we are doing, and we, are ex we as mankind. And, and we're just accepting these things, and we say, tut, tut, that's terrible. We shouldn't be doing those things. And, 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 and gosh, the church shouldn't be accepting homosexuals. Um, and we say, yes, we love the sinner, but we don't accept the sin. And that's good. But there are churches who are accepting it all. And they, they're, just, they're just covering over God's word and God's God's intention for mankind and and I believe in in so many ways the church has been silent and I say no longer should the church be silent are we going to speak up against these things because I I believe that we will be judged for staying silent Perhaps before I carry on, we should just take a moment and perhaps God is going to call a response out of 
one or two of us, some of us perhaps it's going to be for now, but I have a feeling it might be to a larger context. This is not an issue that we can solve in a morning. But if you, yeah, if you feel God speaking to you through what Leslie has had to share, then I encourage you just, let's, we're going to take a moment now, let's allow the Spirit to speak to us if we need to receive that. And if there's something you need to do about it, I encourage you to act. There's something God lays on your heart. There's a cause. There's an organization. There's a sin issue that exists, and you need to respond. Ask God how you need to do that. Ask Him what steps you need to take to do that. with us this morning. So, Alan, maybe if you and the team could come and join us on the stage, and we want to just enter into a space of turning our attention and our thoughts back to God and on following Him in the Spirit. And so, if there are things that need to come into the corporate space, you're welcome to bring them to us at the front, and we will do our best to follow the Lord in that. Um, are we going to bring this? Yeah, let's bring this in. Father, we want to we want to thank you for the grace that you have extended to us in Christ. We want to thank you, Lord, that that is totally and completely undeserved. We want to thank you, Father, that you have demonstrated that to us and that we live in incredible freedom as a result. But, Lord, we are a people who are called to be burdened about the reality of sin around us. And we want to respond in the correct way as your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts. That you would show us, God, the things that we need to take up and the things that we need to lay down. If there are people that we need to speak to, organizations that we need to partner with, Lord, I pray you would lead us there. We don't want to act out of emotion. And we don't want to act out of good intention. But, Lord, we want to follow the leading of the spirits. And so we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to just come and to move us as a people and as a body to the places that you are leading us to. Thank you, God. So we're going to begin to, the team is going to begin to play. And, you know, if you need to respond in worship, we encourage you to do that. If you need to respond by waiting on the Lord, I encourage you to do it. If the Lord has given you something that we need to hear, then bring it for us, um, and we will do what we can to make sure that happens. Thanks, Alain.